All right, when we say uh, in the questions that we ask of, of each person that joins the church, do you believe in, uh, I'm changing my glasses, I've been wearing them all weekend, so if I do that, that's just, I'm crazy. Um, but we, we ask, do you believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God? And that's a very important aspect of our confession. And we mean by that specifically, do you believe in Him as God the Son? Not just a Son of God or not a creature of God, not a Son of God like everybody's a Son of God, and He's the greatest Son of God. But we mean specifically that He is uh, none other than God the Son. So believing in the divinity of Christ, we believe, is essential in Christianity. It's not an option. It's not an extra thing. It is vital uh, for <clears throat> believing, uh, for being saved, actually. And uh, we'll look at that as, as we uh, proceed here, what that, what that means. Now, <clears throat> we, when we begin talking about the uh, three persons in the Godhead... Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are not talking about three gods. And so that's why the first thing I have here is, is one nature. Uh, there, as they say, you can never illustrate the Trinity, so don't try. So here I go. Uh, <laughs> um, but maybe this is the best I've ever seen. Uh, is that in this way, if you say this is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit... You can at least see how each person shares the same being, okay? His being, if you, if you call this the being of God, each person has the same being. So there is one God in terms of his nature, okay? Or maybe call substance or whatever. So the Son is not a creature. Holy Spirit is not a creature. None of these are cre- this all are God, but there is a relationship that they have between each other, and that's we don't we really don't think we can say any more than that. Basically, that there is relationship within God, but but they have the same nature, they have the same power, the same glory, the same uh, everything, because there is only one God. Uh, and yet, there's relationship in God. We, we don't know how that can be. We, we don't have a human analogy for that. But it is a beautiful and wonderful thing, as we've talked about it before, uh, because relationship within God, when you think of our being made in God's image, you think how important relationship is to us. It's critical. We can't live without relationship. Uh, every human problem is related to relationship. Uh, the destruction of relationship, the damage to relationship, uh, the pain of a broken, a broken relationship, and the vital need we have of relationship and love. And so when we say God is love, this predates the world, okay? Let's say here's creation. Before creation, God is love because there is love within the Godhead. And Jesus referred to this in John 17 where he says, You loved me before the world began. So this glorious idea 
that God has always been, but God has always been relationship. There has always been love in God. And so our being made in his image is uh, to, to, to understand that is to understand what we must be about in terms of relationship. This was huge for me uh, because I was such a, uh, when, growing up in high school and partly in college, I was the, about the shyest person in the world and I used to dream about living on a desert island. I just thought if I could be away from people, that would be easy for me. That would be comfortable for me. And really learning about the Trinity was one of the key things that made me realize you know, your fear of people or your desire to be not around, not to be around people is not a healthy thing. It's not a good thing. It's not good for you or anybody else because you are made for relationship because you're made in the image of God who is relationship. And I think this is a, a powerful thing just talking to people about who we believe God is. You know, it, it, it makes such incredible sense. It's such an explanation of what we are as human beings, what we need as human beings. And so uh, it's a, it may be, in one hand, a little bit difficult to grasp, but it's glorious and beautiful and explanatory, really, of us as human beings to understand uh, the Trinity. <clears throat> so, but we're just as emphatic as a Jew would be, just as emphatic as the Jews in saying there is only one God. You know, we're not in any way changing that in terms of there being one God. We are emphatic that there is one God. And uh, these statements in Deuteronomy, we would stand right alongside the, the, the uh, Jewish scriptures and say the Lord is one and there's only one God. Um, so I, I explain a little bit of it in that paragraph right there of how each one shares the same attributes. <clears throat> but the three... The three persons. And John 1 uh, gives us a little idea, uh, a little glimpse into that, uh, because he, he, takes the, he takes the Genesis account, and instead of saying, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, purposely, John says, in the beginning, right at that point of creation, let me, it's as though John, you know, Genesis starts at creation. It's as though John comes up to that fence of creation and he peeks over it to look back behind creation. Say, well, what was going on at the time of creation? He says, so in the beginning, we're thinking of Genesis, in the beginning was the Word. What is the Word? The Word was with God. Okay, he accompanied God, but the Word was God. And then we start scratching our head and say, wait a minute, how could he be God and how could he be with God? But this is John's way of getting at this. There was none other than God who came to the earth and took upon himself flesh. But this one who is God had fellowship with one who is God. Okay? And that, that's this. One who is God has fellowship with one who is God. Who has fellowship with one who is God. One God, but there is fellowship in that Godhead. <clears throat> so, um, statements uh, underneath there that underscore how He is God, the fact that He was the creator of the world, verse 3 of John. All things were made through Him, without Him was not anything made that was made. And in Scripture, you're either on one side or the other of that equation. You're either creation or you're creator, okay? There's, there's, there's no other place to be. And he says, this one who is the word, this one who took upon himself flesh, he was the creator of the world. 
He was God. There's nothing else he could have been. That doesn't belong to angels. It doesn't belong to some thing God made who then made the earth. No, it's God. God alone can make the world. As he said in the Old Testament again and again, I alone have made the heavens and the earth. And now here he is. The word who, is, who became Jesus Christ uh, is the creator of the world. Colossians 1 uh, says the same thing here about his being uh, the creator. But then in verse 17, even says he's before all things. So he existed before everything else existed. And in him, all things hold together. So he, he predates, if you want to put it that way, all of creation. And he created everything and then he holds everything together. Um, so it's underscoring the fact that he is nothing less than God. And you see the same thing on page 33 um, in Philippians 2. He was in the form of God, and this means being the very uh, form and nature of God. And he was obviously equal with God. He was God, but he didn't uh, regard it as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, poured himself out for the sake of his people. And the same things are said in Hebrews 1, uh, the radiance of the glory of God, and he uh, upholds the world and created the world. The Spirit is referred to as, as God. Uh, you can see that in Acts 5. Uh, the lying to the Holy Spirit was lying to God. Uh, Peter has no problem saying one or the other in Acts. Um, he says that the Spirit can uh, comprehend the thoughts of God. How can, this, how can any being comprehend the thoughts of God except God? And so he's given God-like uh, Attributes in uh, Hebrews 9 speaks of him as being the eternal spirit, something only said of God. And then uh, you have, so you have these statements that the Son is God and the Spirit is God. And then you have them all mentioned together in these passages uh, at the bottom of page 33. So they're, they're distinct. It's not as though, because there, there's one, uh, several heresies that would say, well, he first appeared as the Father, and then he appeared as the Son, then he appeared as the Holy Spirit. But it's really, they're not three persons, it's just how he appears to us in these three different ways. And that's why these passages are important, because it speaks of them as distinct uh, and in, in relationship. Uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, though the word Trinity is not found in Scripture, it's something that the church has drawn from Scripture, trying to pull everything in Scripture together and to say, here are these three that are all given God-like qualities, yet God is one, yet they have relationship. Uh, as it says on page 34, Jesus says in John seventeen five. Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Had the same glory as the Father. Or later in John, um, he says, uh, you loved me before the foundation of the world, as we've already mentioned. Um, so, um, this doctrine uh, of the Trinity is uh, very important because of, number one, it... it describes God's life before creation and it tells us something about his purpose in creation and redemption. Uh, that there is this triune God 
who makes the world through the Son, and this triune God who gives His Son uh, for the sake of His people. Um, I talk about, I've just mentioned number two, the Trinity is important because it speaks of man's being and his need, and we've already talked about that, that we have to have relationship and our our, uh, relationship of love is necessary to reflect the glory of the Trinity. How can we reflect His glory? Because His glory is one in which there is love. And that's why Jesus will pray in John 17, may they be one as we are one, so that they will know that I've been sent by the Father. We're to reflect the unity and the love of the Trinity in our own relationship. And then, number three, uh, it's, it's so important because it is critical to the teaching of the incarnation that God really did become flesh, that God, the God-man, really bore our sins. Um, if there is no Trinity, then God has not given His life up for man. And it destroys the whole argument of places like Philippians 2 and Acts 20.28. Acts 20.28 there says... Uh, speaks of the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. A rather shocking statement to describe God as having blood. But of course it's speaking of the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. So he, one he, Jesus Christ, is God and man. But it's just one, one person. So he speaks of blood, but he uses the name God. Pretty amazing, you know. The church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. <clears throat> um, so it, it destroy if, if there's not a trinity, there's, there's not the Father pouring out his wrath on the Son. There's not the, the God coming and taking upon himself flesh and dying on behalf of men um, and women. Uh, the whole meaning of Scripture is gone without the Trinity. So believing in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is is critical in our whole understanding of what the Bible uh, teaches, what the New Testament is about. Um, And at the bottom, I just describe a little bit of what Trinity means. And I discuss a little bit of what... uh, how it can be helpful in talking to non-Christians about uh, the Trinity there, too. Uh, But I'll let you read that. So, then, uh, speak some of the uh, incarnation of the Son of God uh, and how, how He became flesh. Our catechism asks, who's the Redeemer of God's elect? And this is a beautiful statement. The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God, became man, and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. Very succinct, very precise, but a wonderful statement of who Christ is. He's the eternal Son of God. He became man, and so He continues to be God and man forever. It wasn't that he became man for a little while and then he went back to just being God, you know, that kind of thing. He emptied himself of his godness and just was a man for a while. And then he went back to, you know, having full godness. But he, he just took to himself flesh. He took to himself humanity through the, his birth uh, at the, with uh, the Virgin Mary. And so he continues with these two natures, God and man. Uh, they're two distinct natures. He's truly man. He's truly God. 
one person forever. It's a shocking, stunning thing that God has become man. It's one of the most glorious things, of course, taught in Scripture, we believe. So John 1, 14 says, The Word, remember, the Word that was God, and the Word that was with God, and the Word that made the world, that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory. Or the statement in Philippians 2, it's very clear too. He was in the form of God. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So there's this he that was equal with God, uh, who was the very form of God. He took the form of man. He was born in the likeness of men. That's the way the New Testament talks. That is New Testament uh, basic theology, That speaking of this one who was and became flesh. Same with Galatians 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law. And for Paul, of course, this means His eternal Son, the Son that dwelt with Him forever. And now He sent Him forth into the world, and He was then born of a woman. First uh, John shows the importance of this by this top of 36. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that has not confessed Jesus is not from God. So, interestingly, um, well, dealing with uh, that he's God and man, one person, Jesus Christ. The early history of the church was a series of attacks on one or the other of those ideas. Uh, as we talked about it earlier, the idea that uh, was that God simply wouldn't touch flesh. He just couldn't have. It just appears uh, so, so that it's not possible that he would truly take upon himself flesh. So they would say that God appeared, had the form of a man, but he really didn't become a man. Some say right before the cross, he exited, so to speak, uh, and really wasn't involved in that. Uh, others, though, would say that he really, uh, either either he, he was less than God, so you had uh, a guy named Arius, who's like the modern Jehovah's Witness, who would say that he was, uh, they'd say he was a creation. The highest of creation, but nonetheless a, a creation, an exalted figure, but not really God. Others denied the fact that he was man. But we hold both because we say the Scripture teaches just that. that he was none other than God, and he's fully, fully man. And, and so the heresy is just as, much, just as bad if you say he wasn't man as if you say he wasn't God. E- either way. So, um, I just have the uh, Nicene Creed there uh, for your own consideration if you'd like to look at that. <clears throat> but I don't want to... Uh, it's a little bit, uh, well, it's just something you can enjoy and study on your own. But I'd like to look on page 37, uh, beginning just talking about different aspects of, of uh, Christ. Um, one important thing that's set forth in Scripture is that He was sinless and obedient to the Father. And here are the, you know, quite a list of, of Scriptures the important thing to summarize about that is that he fulfills the law where Adam did not and Israel did not. 
And so Adam sinned and, and plunged us into death. Jesus is the second Adam who perfectly obeys God. Or you can look at it as Israel disobeying God um, in the wilderness, for instance, and Jesus in the wilderness with Satan's temptation obeying God. So uh, Jesus is the, the true son uh, where Israel was the false son. And so his obedience, though, is for our sake. Uh, his obedience that issues finally and fully in the cross. And that's how Paul talks about it in Philippians 2. He says he obeyed even to the point of the cross. So this was the climax and consummation, the fullest part of his obedience. Um, and it's interesting how several times both at his baptism and on the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. So the father's pronouncement that he is pleasing in my sight, I delight in him. He's perfectly obedient. He perfectly reflects the father. Perfectly reflects the father and delights the father. And so you see, in all of this obedience, he becomes for us our righteousness. We don't have that obedience. He performed that obedience. He fulfilled that righteousness. Um, He has a perfect righteousness that is displayed before the Father. And when we are joined to Him and associated with Him, united to Him, then we get to share in that standing that He has with the Father. So when you hear the Father saying, I'm well pleased with my son, it can delight you and me thinking he's well pleased with me if I am in Christ. If I'm hidden in Christ and joined with Christ, then when he says I'm well pleased with my son, he's well pleased with all that are united to his son. We have, it's not a standing I earned on my own. It's not my own righteousness. It's the righteousness which Christ earned. So his obedience is, is critically important for us, uh, that we would have a righteousness before God. And his obedience is critically important because it was in submitting himself to the Father uh, and obeying him to the point of death that he was able to redeem us as well. His obedience uh, alone was, became our redemption. Notice this important aspect down in the bottom of page 37. Uh, He talks about how uh, burnt offerings and sin offerings, uh, that that God takes no pleasure in those offerings, the offerings of, you know, goats and sheep and and calves. Uh, So it's contrasted in verse 7. Then I said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Um. And the point is that no animal could ever be sacrificed and be obedient in that. They're just victims. But Jesus, his sacrifice was different because in his sacrifice, it was a sacrifice of obedience. It was a sacrifice of doing the Father's will and of pleasing the Father. And that's what makes his sacrifice uh, one that redeems us. Uh, because it is a sacrifice of obedience. It's sacrifice that pleases the Father and a sacrifice that wipes out our sins. So he says, by that will we've been made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Um, So each of us has to ask, 
How will I appear before the Father? How will I be accepted before the Father? Here, the Son is perfectly accepted. The Son has made an offering for sin in His obedience. That's our hope. That's our sure hope, is that He has made this offering for us. And we're welcome to trust in Him for it. Um, So, obedience issuing finally in the cross as he says again in Philippians 2, become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Then, of course, the, the centerpiece of his work uh, is the death, his death and resurrection. And the death of, of Christ expresses and shows forth so many things. First, it's the love of the Father uh, for his people. Um, Amazing statement when he talks about in Isaiah 9 that he will give uh, a son. It ends with that little phrase right there, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's his zeal to do us good. Or uh, how it says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was his will, his desire for our salvation that he would crush his son. Or, of course, the famous John 3.16, he so loved the world. He loved the world this much that he gave his only son. And John talks about this again in 1 John 4. Uh, This is how the love of God was made manifest, that he sent his son uh, that we might live. So one of the big, big things about in in Scripture, it is, of course, that on the cross... He pays for our sins, okay, or redeems us. Uh, pays for, for sin or redeems us on the cross. <coughs> but so much in Scripture talks about this whole thing conveying to us the love of God, convincing us of that love, manifesting that love expressing this is how much he loved us. So one of the huge teachings, uh, most critical aspects of the teaching of the cross is it's the act of God's love for his people. And that's, and that's why in 1 John, later in 4, 1 John four sixteen, John says, we've come to know and believe the love that God has for us. He says, here's the final effect of the cross The love of God was revealed to us. He loved so much that he gave his son. This convinces us to put our lives into his hands. It shows forth the glory of God's love because we've seen it in the glory of Christ. What Christ has done shows the Father to us. So this this is not an extra kind of a side issue of the cross. It's really the ultimate bearing upon us, you know, that he did that much for our sake to redeem us that he gave us his son. And that's part of the reason we give our lives up to him. As, uh, as, it, as Paul says, the love of Christ controls us. Well, the love of the Father, no surprise to be the love of the Son. Um, the, the Son always is manifesting the Father. The Son is always showing forth the Father. So the love that the Son has for us, it's really the Father's love shown through the Son. He loves us as the Father loves us. So whatever love the Son has, it's not that He loves us instead of the Father. He's manifesting the love of the Father. And that's what pleases the Father when He sees His Son sacrifice because in a certain sense you could say 
That's exactly what I would do. That's what I wanted to do. You are manifesting my love by dying for my people. So it's not an unwilling father, you know, and the son's dying where he's got his back turned, but it's the father's love expressing itself through the son. And he's, being, he's pleased with the son's love in sacrificing because it's his love. It's, it, it is the father's love showing itself through the son. And so Jesus is able to say, greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. And, of course, he's speaking of himself. And uh, Galatians 1, Paul speaks of, uh, in a very personal way, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. And that means each one of us can say that as we trust in Christ. He loved me. He gave himself for me. It's not just in general, but it's very personal. And so Paul can say again for the, in regard to the church, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. But you see, that aspect of God's love is very important always in Scripture to convey that. Because it's not just what God does in accomplishing salvation, it's the love that he had in, in doing this for us that convinces us and draws us to himself. Um, and so... It's interesting, in 1 John 4.19, we love because He first loved us. Or 2 Corinthians uh, 5.14, the love of Christ controls us. So whether you're speaking about the love of God that transforms us, we so experience that love that we begin to love other people in a new way. So that's kind of the end result of the cross is His love transforms us so that we become people of love. And His love controls the way we think and feel, controls the way we desire, controls our decisions. His love governs me, Paul says, this love of Christ. So the love conveyed through the cross is one of the central important aspects. And, and I think a lot of times, honestly, in at least church I've you know, the churches I've been associated with and the people I've counseled. Um, if you ask them, did Jesus die for your sins? You know, so, many, so often I say, yeah, I know Jesus died for my sins. So you think, you're going, I'm going to heaven. But then when you start questioning them about what's your sense of God's love for you or Christ's love for you, well, that could be all over the map. So trusting in Christ to have died for your sins means as well that you begin to trust in Him and His love. This is the way I like to illustrate it. If you take uh, this as the goodness of God, okay, or the kindness of God or the love of God, whatever, to believe into the cross is to believe into and be convinced of the goodness and love of God, okay? That's why John can say, we believe in Jesus Christ, so we now know and believe in the love of God that He has for us. We're convinced of that love. And, and so this is, this is the basis for a passage like Romans 8, 32, if he didn't spare his own son but gave him up, how will he not give him with him give us all things? So that we believe the goodness of God is past, if you want to look at it this way, past, 
present, future. My whole life is surrounded by the goodness of God. And I'm convinced of that through the cross. If he would give his son for me, he'll do anything for me. We become convinced of God's goodness and love for us through the cross so that the love of Christ controls me. The love of Christ now defines my life. I see everything. That's why Romans 8, 28, I believe all things work together for good. And I'm ultimately convinced of that because of the good he did to me through Christ. So this aspect of the revelation of the love of God and the love of Christ in the cross, it's what redefines our life. And I'm afraid many times we get in a kind of a, almost a little transaction about, well, yeah, I know my sins are forgiven, but in terms of a personal relationship with God where you're, you've really been transformed by understanding His love and that controls when bad things happen to you, tragedies occur to, to you in your life, you still see behind it the love of God because I'm, I'm convinced by the cross that He loves me. So um, the cross is life-changing for that because of what it reveals about, about God. Well, uh, our time is about up. I've got to run. But if you'll read on, uh, just read through these passages, uh, important uh, things about the the death of Christ, uh, how it's a satisfaction for sin. It, It provides release from the tyranny of sin. It restores us to God, to fellowship with Him. Uh, And then, of course, after that, the resurrection. Um, And... I've included all those passages on the resurrection just so that you can have them from now on, you know, and have them all kind of in one place to study and, and meditate on those things. So, any, uh, any questions? I know I've just shot through this without pausing. But... All right, well, let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for the glorious work of Christ on the cross. We thank you, Lord, that none other than God himself took upon himself flesh and bore our sins as the God-man. We thank you, Lord, that you would bear such a weight uh, for sinners, such a weight, uh, such a burden for those who had so wronged you, so rebelled against you. Lord, we, we praise you for a love, as Paul says, that surpasses knowledge. And we pray that as we contemplate your work through Christ on the cross, we really will be constantly convinced of the love that you have for us in Christ. And Lord, we will truly believe that if you did not spare your own son, you will freely give us all things, all things needful uh, to become like Christ. And all things will work together to Uh, move us to conformity to Christ and to make us more into the image of Christ. Lord, thank you. Thank you for uh, a glorious salvation and that it will finally issue and even uh, rescue from death itself. We, We praise you for your goodness and grace to us in Christ. Amen.